Hello and welcome to the Ages Patient Podcasts. This series of podcasts is going to go through a number of common gynaecological conditions. This will be from a patient perspective. My name is Rachel Green. I'm an obstetrician and gynaecologist and I'm a board member for the Australasian Gynaecological Endoscopy and Surgery Society. I chair the Women's Health Subcommittee and part of the duties of the subcommittee is to provide information for patients. You will see on our website www.ages.com.au a number of useful patient information videos including and a video on excision of endometriosis. As endometriosis is very topical currently, we have just chosen to make this our first patient podcast. We hope you'll find this podcast useful. This morning, I'm joined by Professor Jason Abbott. Um, he is the current AGES president. And um, Jason, if you'd like to introduce yourself and just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Hi, Rachel. Uh, I'm Jason Abbott. I'm Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at UNSW in Sydney. And uh, my area of expertise and interest is uh, now almost exclusively in endometriosis. So this is something that I've been doing for quite a long time. And my PhD was in the laparoscopic management of endometriosis. So today um, we are going to do a podcast um, for patient information regarding um, this disease endometriosis. So we'll just start off with a really obvious question. What even is endometriosis? So endometriosis is a very common condition. It affects about one in 10 women. So about 730,000 Australian women will have endometriosis. And it's where tissue that's similar to the lining of the uterus grows outside of the uterus and on other areas in the pelvis. And it sets up these areas of tissue and that causes pain and or fertility problems for some but not all women. Um, so what would be the common presentations for a patient you might suspect having endometriosis? So there's two principal ways that women with endometriosis would present. The first is with a variety of pelvic pain symptoms and these can be really variable and it might be that women have very severe period pain right from the time that they get their periods in their teenage years. It also may be that they develop symptoms at a later time and these could be pain away from their periods. It might be pain when they use their bowels or bladder. It might be pain with intercourse. And what often happens is whilst it starts off with pain, it then goes on to non-gynecological issues, if you consider. So things like headaches, fatigue, um, uh, extreme lethargy are all very common in women who have endometriosis. So it's not just about the pelvis and it's not just about pain. The second pathway that women will often present with endometriosis is an inability to become pregnant when they want to. And we know that for couples who are having trouble becoming pregnant, about 40% of women will have endometriosis in that group. So it's a very common diagnosis for women who can't become pregnant. So in my clinic setting, I see a lot of women who come in with, with period pain. So how do we differentiate those that just have period pain and those who might have endometriosis? Look, that's a really good question and I think we must remember that about 90% of women will have period pain at some stage of their life, so it's incredibly common. For the majority of women, it's either relatively short or simply controlled with analgesics. What happens for women who have endometriosis is they will often have very severe period pain and that limits their day-to-day -day activities. They can't go to school, they can't go to work, it inhibits their social activities. It just stops them from doing what they want to do. In that situation, that is not normal. 
In addition, if you have pain and it's not controlled with simple analgesics using anti-inflammatories, sometimes with or, or, or uh, in combination with paracetamol or other simple analgesics or local heat, if you're not responding to those simple treatments, then it's time for you to see your doctor and consider that you might have endometriosis as a cause. And would they do any diagnostic testing prior, for you, prior to you seeing these patients in your clinic setting? Often with diagnostics, there's a, a range of things that women will have done, and by far the commonest would be an ultrasound of the pelvis. And it's a good way to look for structural problems of the pelvis, but there are limits to that. We now know that ultrasound can be useful in diagnosing quite severe endometriosis in most ultrasound settings, and people who are particularly skilled at ultrasound will be able to detect other types of endometriosis, although it does take a good degree of experience to be able to pick that up, and not all ultrasound practices will be able to do that. And I think that that's an important uh, consideration because just if you've had a normal ultrasound doesn't mean you don't have endometriosis. If you've had an ultrasound and it shows that you've got disease on the ovaries or you've had a particularly skilled operator who says that there's disease and lumpiness in the ligaments that attach the uterus onto the backbone, then there's a very high chance in actual fact that you have endometriosis. What we don't yet have is a non-invasive alternate test, such as a blood test, which would help us to make that diagnosis. And people have been looking at that for a long time, but we're not there quite yet. Is there a role for any other imaging modality, a CT scan or an MRI scan? One of the problems that we have with CT and MRI is uh, both availability and cost. And often they're, they're difficult to, to access, particularly if you're not in a, in a large city, and they can be quite expensive. And they don't actually make a great deal of improvement compared with high-quality ultrasound. Again, if you don't have high-quality ultrasound, there may well be a role for something like MRI, but you have to be able to access it and you have to be able to afford it. And interpretation, are there any issues with CT or MRI scan? Is it a clear-cut diagnosis? It's, there's no such thing, I think, as a clear-cut diagnosis and not with endometriosis. It's a really difficult disease and one of the reasons that we have struggled for so long is it can be very difficult to pick up, even with any kind of imaging. And ultrasound and MRI both have their difficulties in uh, accurately diagnosing the disease. And it does take a very skilled operator who reads the scans, reads the MRI or reads the, the ultrasound to be able to make that diagnosis. And that's a really important consideration. So what do we do? How do we manage these women? Ah, <clears throat> another difficult question, <laughs> but uh, an important one. Look, I think that there's a range of different approaches. The first one is to provide information to women. I think that's number one what is the disease and how we can approach this. Simple things are often best because they're usually not invasive. So looking at analgesics if the woman has pain and looking at non-medical options as well. So we often talk about exercise, we talk about diet, we talk about meditation, we talk about yoga, we talk about self-management strategies for women and I think that that's fantastic. All of those are really good. They're not going to reverse the disease, but they may help a woman cope and improve her quality of life. And I think that that's a great starting point. For women who need additional help, 
then you might consider other medical options. And in, in medicine, once you've gone through uh, simple analgesics, you're really looking at hormonal options, things like the oral contraceptive pill or progesterones. And that's a half of the hormones that we find in the combined oral contraceptive pill. And there's a variety of different ways that they can be delivered through tablets. Uh, you can have an, uh, an implant that's given into the arm. You could have a Mirena. Uh, so all of these are potential options for uh, improving the symptoms associated with endometriosis. But of course, all of the hormones means that if you're trying for a pregnancy, then that's not going to be possible. And not all women respond well to hormones as, uh, as well. They don't like the side effects or they actually have hormone-resistant endometriosis. And that's another point. Having been through the hormonal things, then from a medical perspective, you start to get into surgical treatments. And that would usually by, be by a laparoscopy, where we make a little hole in the belly button, put in the thin telescope and have a look at the contents of the pelvis and abdomen. And you can remove the, the lesions at the same time. That makes a diagnosis and helps to improve the symptoms as well. Uh, and so surgery is an option, but it is invasive. It does involve a general anaesthetic. It does involve an admission to hospital and it's not without risk. Uh, and it's important to recognise those, uh, those specific issues. After that, then there are non um, hormonal non-surgical treatment options and other issues such as uh, problems with muscular function in the pelvic floor may be treated with pelvic floor physiotherapy. We do sometimes use complex things like Botox into the pelvic floor musculature for the problems that can be associated downstream from endometriosis. People use complementary and alternative medicines and although we don't have a lot of information yet in that field, uh, it is growing. And so, again, these are all options that are available to women. How do we decide who should have an operation and who shouldn't? Are there any criteria about those particular women? I think what you need to do is arm women with the information first. For me, the first step is discussing what the likelihood is of disease through a good history, doing an examination using simple imaging procedures and then having a discussion with women about what the options are for her. If a woman wants a definite diagnosis, then there is only one option and that is unfortunately an invasive procedure, a laparoscopy, but that will give her a diagnosis um, and uh, may help to remove the lesions as well. If women have been on simple treatments, and I would usually always recommend that women do start with the non-invasive approach, if they've been on those additional treatments, then, then surgery may be helpful. But I think you need to take that in context of what are their symptoms and what do they want out of that? Yeah. Because if uh, they have, for example, problems with intercourse and they've got muscular dysfunction in the, in the floor of the pelvis, then starting off with surgery may not solve that problem. And they may be best starting with something like pelvic floor physiotherapy. And if that solves their problem, then they haven't had to have the intervention. So you need to take a detailed history and listen to what the woman's symptoms are because she's telling you what it is that she wants to do. I often talk to people about what they expect, what that outcome they expect from surgery. Do they expect their pain to improve? So let's talk about that. Do you think pain will improve after an operation? And do you think fertility can improve after surgery? Both very good questions and, and they need to be answered slightly differently. So I think the first part of that is we know that surgery will improve pain for women who have endometriosis lesions about 80% of the time. 
And the response to that will be variable. It can be absolutely complete, uh, down to nothing. And we know that one in five women will have no response to surgery. And that could be because the endometriosis was not the cause of their pelvic pain, or the endometriosis has caused other symptoms to occur that might be leading to their pain symptoms, and that's why they presented to the doctor. The second part of that surgical uh, approach is how long do you get relief for? Well, we know that about 30% of women will have a recurrence of their symptoms over about a five-year period. So it's a, a relatively common uh, situation that women's pain will return. And that may be because the lesions have uh, returned or it may be because they've, they've got associated symptoms. So the second part of that is does surgery improve fertility? It's a little bit more of a complex situation. And for women who have no other cause for their infertility, we uh, suggest that, that removing endometriosis does improve their fertility. But in both situations with pain and fertility, I have a little adage that your first go is your best go. And so if you've already had surgery for endometriosis and you have problems with fertility, it is highly unlikely that you are going to have improvement with a second or subsequent surgery. And you may, in some situations, make your fertility worse, particularly if you've got disease on the ovaries and the ovaries have already been operated on. So again, you need to be cautious about surgery for endometriosis-associated infertility. That's really important. So do we understand how endometriosis can affect fertility? Mm. Oh, look, the short answer to that is no, yeah. we don't. Uh, look, but there are two, two key important areas where we think endometriosis affects fertility. The first one is in the production of high-quality eggs. Women will often produce eggs, but they may not just be as good a quality as they would be with the endometriosis lesions absent. And it doesn't actually matter whether the endometriosis is in the ovary or just around the ovary. The mere presence of disease can be the issue with the production of high-quality eggs. And that's one of the reasons that we think removing endometriosis may improve your fertility because you don't have a whole bunch of chemicals that are being uh, elaborated by these strange little areas outside of the uterus and you suddenly get higher quality eggs and that does mean that you've got a higher chance of pregnancy. Can we test for that at all? Is there any way of knowing egg quality? We cannot test for egg quality and it's a, it's a big area for research. We can test for quantity and we can do that with ultrasound and we can do that with a blood test called an AMH which is, which is a pretty reasonable test. Um, but not perfect. We don't have a perfect test, but we can't test the quality. And I think that's a really important thing for us to remember in any situation. And then uh, the, the second aspect for fertility is around implantation. So once you've got an egg and a sperm together and you've got fertilisation and that little embryo is moving down into the uterus, just implanting in the uterus. And we think that women who have endometriosis the lining of their uterus, the, the, the bit that we call endometrium, is in fact probably also abnormal and that may, may prevent the implantation from occurring. So they're the two key areas that we think are reducing fertility and certainly one of the reasons why we think removing those patches of disease can improve fertility because it may improve egg quality. And what, what's the role of IVF? Like can, we, can we cure everything just by, by doing IVF for these patients? IVF absolutely has a role, uh, but it's not going to be uh, the, the reason that all women become pregnant. 
treatment. And unfortunately, even when you have IVF for some women, unfortunately, they aren't able to achieve a pregnancy. IVF overcomes many of the problems of uh, egg quality and production because you produce many more eggs in a single cycle. They are retrieved and then you take them outside and then you grow the embryos and hopefully you're growing better quality embryos. It never changes the implantation issues, however. And so uh, whilst uh, we definitely know that there are situations where IVF is recommended over and above uh, surgery in, in certain situations, and we can use um, the extent of disease as predictors of success of IVF or natural pregnancy, it's not the be all and end all, but it should be used judiciously, I think, in and sometimes it is the best way to go. And let me give you an example for that. I think if a woman is presenting and she has uh, mild to moderate disease that you can either feel and she doesn't have a lot of ovarian disease, but she really doesn't have any symptoms, you might suspect she has endometriosis um, and then uh, she really wants to have a baby and she's been trying for, say, two years, IVF may certainly be her best option to get a baby quickly. Uh, it won't give you the diagnosis, but it may produce the outcome. The alternative is for a woman who's got endometriosis suspected and symptoms of pain, she may do better with surgery initially because it will treat both her symptoms and may improve her fertility. But remember, the first go is your best go and multiple surgeries can be problematic and actually reduce fertility chances. I always feel the hard thing with the disease is just knowing which patient to choose for which option. There's just not really that kind of clear um, recommendation, this patient you should do this and this patient you should do that. There's still so much uncertainty about it, which makes it hard for the patient. It's a, it's a really good comment and that's why we have you know an individualised approach. Mm. And as yet, we don't have a study that goes head to head with surgery versus IVF, which is why we have to often say, well, there are there's only ever three options with fertility here too. You, know, you can only keep trying all by yourself not all by yourself, but you know, naturally, you can have IVF or you can have surgery. Yes. So you've only got those three choices. And it depends if you've been trying naturally for 12 months or two years, then what you might need to consider is moving up the line and do you have surgery or do you have IVF? And women will often self-select mm. in that argument too. There are a lot of women who don't want to have a surgical procedure and so you would direct them towards IVF. And the, and the, the inverse is true as well. Many women don't want to have IVF. Perfectly reasonable yes. to think about. And we haven't discussed age because obviously that's, you know, a critical factor with these women if they're, obviously if they're older and feeling the pressure of time a little bit more, does that influence your decision? Oh, look, absolutely it might uh, because age is, we know, the biggest potential problem for women becoming pregnant and the, the closer you are to 40, the much more difficult it is. Mm -hmm. And so delaying uh, um, an intervention uh, being on a surgical waiting list for 12 months may in fact be really problematic for a woman yes. who's in her late 30s and that may not be in her best interest. So again, it's it's recommending what is best for her and being able to access uh, appropriate uh, and affordable services. So you spoke briefly before just about stages. So let's, let's just talk about what are the stages of endometriosis. So someone says, I've got stage four disease. What, what does that actually mean? So we usually break down... Uh, endometriosis and it's a sort of surgical diagnosis into stage one, two, three and four disease and they account for minimal, 
mild, moderate and severe disease. So stage one is a little bit, stage four is a lot. And the staging system is not fantastic. And the reason for that is within stage four, if you think about severe disease, sometimes stage four uh, can actually mean that you've got disease on the ovary or it can mean uh, a large area of disease that's close by the bowel but doesn't involve the tubes in the ovaries. And that may actually have a significant impact on the likelihood of that disease coming back and also on the likelihood of that woman becoming and so the staging of disease, unfortunately, doesn't really reflect the pain symptoms that may occur for women. So you might have early disease, so stage one disease, and have terrible pain. And the opposite of that, of course, is there are women who have very, very severe disease. Uh, they might have disease that includes their ovaries, their bowel. I've even seen disease that grows through the woman's vagina and she has absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. So it's never reflective of that. And the same is actually true for fertility as well. Um, I think the, the, the only caveat is in women who have very severe disease, where it does affect their tubes and the ovaries, these women will nearly always have reduction in their fertility. So you've been involved with the National Action Plan for Endometriosis. We've seen a lot of you on television. You've been recently on, on Inside on SBS. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what the National Action Plan is and how did you become involved with that? So the National Action Plan is, is really um, the production of a, a variety of groups from around the country. And there's, there's plenty of patient uh, activist groups who have really been involved in that. And there's five key groups, Endometriosis Australia, Endoactive, the Pelvic Pain Foundation, Quendo, and the Canberra Endometriosis Network. And these five groups and um, the people who've been supporting them got together with clinicians and researchers and really started to raise the profile of endometriosis because it's largely under-recognised and certainly underfunded in terms of service delivery and research. And so uh, we pitched to uh, our um, politicians and said, this is a problem for women in this country. We know that one in 10 women have this disease and yet there's not a lot known about it. And from that, in fact, the very first national action plan ever in Australia has been produced, and that's on endometriosis. So that's a, a fantastic and combined effort from support groups, clinicians and researchers, all working well together. What that's done is really given us a blueprint of where we would like to go. I think a lot of it's aspirational. I think like all of these things, uh, with, there's a lot of information in there that's going to take time and a lot of money to come to fruition. But really where we need to be emphasising the uh, points is to try and increase awareness and education of women and girls who might have this disease, their carers and point of contact from general practitioners, uh, nurses and emergency departments, uh, where women may present if they have pain symptoms, particularly early in life. We need to try and dispel myths and misinformation, such as teenagers don't get endometriosis, the pregnancy cures endometriosis. These are really important things that we must dispel so that uh, women aren't prescribed babies as a treatment and told it will all go away if they have a baby. And um, then the, the next point, of course, is understanding the disease and really starting to invest heavily in endometriosis research. And that's going to change the, uh, the future for women who have endometriosis because we're going to have a better understanding of the causes and get better treatments for that. And I think that's really where the emphasis is going to be in the National Action Plan in the next three years. 
I see with great interest um, that the South Australian Government are introducing an education scheme for schools, something I've felt quite passionate about. I've been trying to engage my daughter's school in going as a gynaecologist and talking to the teenage girls about periods and what's normal and what's not normal. What, what do you think about the school's educational program? Oh, look, it's absolutely fantastic and a, a really important component of that first aspect of the National Action Plan, which is around education and awareness. And this program has been put together um, by Dr Susan Evans and the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia, and they've done a super job, really, of getting this put through with combined funding from state and federal governments. And it's really in its, uh, its initiation stage, and we'll hopefully have a lot more information and then see the rollout of a similar type of program around the country. And, of course, if people are talking about endometriosis, if they're talking about periods, you know, girls and boys, then we start to demystify what is menstruation, what is abnormal, what classifies as normal, when do you seek intervention, what kinds of intervention you need to seek, and then what information is important for you and your family. And they're the kinds of things that are going to make a really significant difference for the future of women and girls with endometriosis in this country. So it's something that we're, we're very much watching and is really part of this very important um, program of, of interventions that are going to change endometriosis. Hopefully our podcast also will uh, enable people to obtain information and become wise about this disease. So if we have listeners that are tuned into the podcast and listen to some of the symptoms and think that they may have endometriosis, what would be your advice to them? Where should they go? Yeah, look, I think there are a number of sites that are certainly becoming uh, aware of the National Action Plan and that's available through the uh, Australian Government website. That's helpful. And then I mentioned before those five uh, patient uh, groups. That's that's all useful information. I'm the medical director of Endometriosis Australia, and we've got a lot of webinars and information available on the Endometriosis Australia website. And so that's a good port of call for women to go to. But uh, Quendo and the Pelvic Pain Foundation uh, and Endoactive also have some information on their websites. And women can get involved in different levels as well. So some of them are more support groups and some have uh, more action uh, items for um, the development of the information. And so women can become aware of what it is that the disease uh, does and where they can get further help. And obviously going and seeing their general practitioner and discussing their symptoms and then hopefully be provided with a referral to see a specialist. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think if a woman goes prepared to their general practitioner. Um, I certainly have come across absolutely sensational primary care providers in a variety of different situations, not just to general practitioners who give the right information, but I think we need to upskill some of our general practitioners in other areas as well, and that's important. So if a woman does find herself uh, armed and ready with information, but she doesn't feel like she's getting the right responses, then she may want to uh, to investigate other areas and see if she can get help. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. I think um, this will be a podcast that people will find very informative and very helpful. And this will be the first of many of our podcasts that we'll be doing through, through the Ages Society. So I hope you'll all tune in and listen to our future podcasts. It's been my pleasure, Rachel. Thanks very much. You're welcome.